This is Christopher Radiant Fire Radio, and I have a very special guest with me, Richard Capriola. He's the author of The Addicted Child. He has a lot of insights that he's going to share with us today that is going to help you as a parent, a step-parent, meet the needs of your kids. Mr. Capriola, thanks for joining us. You're very welcome. I appreciate you having me and taking the time to talk to me about this important topic. Thank you. So how did you get into this topic itself? Um, well, I started out in education, transitioned over to working in mental health at a crisis center. Wow. And, and then uh, uh, I, I noticed that a lot of people coming into the crisis center had both a mental health and a substance abuse issue. So I went back to uh, get some education and training on uh, substance abuse and then uh, was offered a position at Menninger Clinic in Houston, Texas, which is a large psychiatric hospital where oh, wow. I worked, worked for over a decade um, uh, with both adults and adolescents who have both a mental health and a substance abuse issue. And I met with lots of parents during that time and, and, um, I, I wanted, after I left Menninger, I wanted to provide a brief resource that would give them the basic information in a very short, concise book that they could read uh, and, and, and walk away from thinking that, you know, they understand this topic a little better. They're not as afraid of it as maybe they were before. And if they're confronted with it, they feel better prepared and more confident to deal with it. And I, I, I kept it short. It's only about 107 pages because uh, I know parents don't have a lot of time to sit down and read a lot. So I wanted to make it uh, something they could read very quickly. You know, when you're when you're dealing with uh, step stepchildren, step families, and and even you know regular families, this is a problem that is often swept up under the rug because it has some level of embarrassment to it. Yeah. And I found that, you know, I'm also also a, a volunteer in my church. When trying to help other parents, there's they feel a sense of shame and degradation because of what their child has gotten into. And it really has nothing to do with that. When you're looking at substance abuses, where do you see some of the things that where they start getting into this. Is it is it the common thought of peer pressure or is it genetics? What have you found in your research? It, it, it's a lot of different reasons. Um, a different different things attract uh, different kids. Um, you know, some of them are attracted to a substance because of of the peers that they're with, or maybe peer pressure. Uh, some of it just as an experimentation to see how it how it reacts, and if they have a good good reaction, a good feeling, they they uh, they may they may continue to use the substance. In some cases, not all cases, but in some cases, I found that a teenager is using a substance to medicate some some underlying issue like anxiety or depression or maybe some type of trauma, maybe being bullied at school that the parents knew nothing about. Sure. A lot of the teenagers that I worked with who were smoking marijuana, for example, when I asked them to help me understand why they were smoking the drug, uh, the answer that came back many times was it helps me with my anxiety. So for some kids, and certainly not 
all kids, but for some kids, there's an underlying uh, emotional issue that they're using a drug or alcohol to medicate. In other cases, it might be peer pressure, it might be peer influences, it might be just experimentation. That's interesting that you would say that they would um, offer up that they felt anxiety. Yeah. Um, are you finding that more kids now are receiving counseling to be able to have words for these types of feelings? Because it, it doesn't seem like um, trying to. It doesn't seem like that those words would be natural to adolescents. Yeah, in, in many cases, that's true, uh, and, and, and it and it's a process of sort of helping them, you know, describe what they're feeling. In, in words that we can relate to. So they may not use the term anxiety, right. but they may be able to give us examples of how they're feeling in certain situations. And then we can relate to, oh, that's anxiety or that's depression. So they may not know the technical words, but they know the feelings that they're experiencing. Yeah, and I, I find that, you know, the internet has been a resource and our kids are using the internet more. So they are trying to find out why they feel the way that they do. And it's, it's interesting that you, you know, you use that word anxiety. I think sometimes kids can relate to depression where before it was a stigma. You, you would never say you were depressed, you know, yeah, yeah. now kids today are more readily able to share or express that type of emotion. Not that they're able to get help for it because sometimes, you know, the parents or the adults are just not paying attention yeah, things that are going on. That's very true. Sometimes um, you know, the parents uh, are, are are surprised by this. I, I I would sit across from parents and I would go through their child's history of using a substance, and I would give them the diagnosis of a substance use disorder. And after hearing all of the information, sometimes they would look across at me and they would say, I had no idea this was going on. Wow. Or if they did suspect their child was, if they did suspect their child was using a substance, they might say, well, I knew something was going on, but I didn't know it was this bad. Wow. Um, you know, and, and they're good parents. I mean, they're good parents. It's just that they felt so bad about how they missed everything. And, and then they start to, they start to really feel bad about themselves, question what kind of parents they are. And, you know, this is a complicated issue and teenagers are very clever. It's not, not all that unusual that they can sort of, you know, hide all of this from their parents for, for quite a while. It's interesting that you use that word hide because in our family, our extended family, a couple of our cousins, you know, one of them was 14 years old and they found her in a drug house. And they were like, we didn't even know you were doing these types of things. Yeah. And, you know, because of, you know, the history and the background of the family, super, super religious, um, they did have some, you know, some deaths in the family and things like that. And they were just trying to figure out how did, how did this happen? Yeah. Can you, you use the term earlier about um, substance abuse disorder. Yeah. What is that? Well, it is, it is, um, we used to call it abuse and dependency. That's how uh -huh. we would diagnose people. Somebody, some of them were abusing them. Some of them were dependent on it, which means they needed more and more of the substance as time went on. Uh, but we got away from that and we now 
diagnose it as a substance use disorder, recognizing it's a disorder like any other disorder, like anxiety or depression. And it can be either mild, moderate, or severe. And, and how we determine that is based upon how disruptive the substance has become in the person's life. How many negative characteristics are we seeing? Is it affecting a person's life in maybe only one or two areas? Or is it affecting a person's life in four or five, six, seven, eight different areas? And obviously, the more disruptive a drug is in that person's life, the more negative consequences it's causing, mm -hmm. the more likely the person is to move up from mild to moderate to severe. Wow. How important is the, uh, the education community uh, involved with this and also the, uh, you know, hosp hospitals and your, your primary care doctors in helping with this, get this identified and even treated? Well, I don't think the schools are very helpful. Uh, I don't think they place enough emphasis, uh, especially during the early grades, on educating children about uh, the brain and how vulnerable the brain is uh, during adolescence and, and the need to protect the brain and how these drugs can interfere with the developing brain. Uh, I think we could do a better job of beginning that education in elementary grades and then reinforcing forcing it every year through high school so that as kids go through school, they're beginning to get an understanding, not just that drugs are bad and you should stay away from it because they don't, they don't care about that stuff. They don't listen to it. Right. But if we can focus on the education, the neuroscience and help them get an appreciation for the fact that their brain is developing and very vulnerable and the need to protect that brain. And if we begin that very early ages and, and continue to reinforce enforce it. I think we could make a difference in some of these kids. That's interesting. And, you know, again, with having to deal with different people, you know, counseling and, and trying to help them seek help. One of the most common things that they say about marijuana is it doesn't do any damage to your brain. It, it, and I've seen studies where the long-term effects are you lose your memory, you lose your short-term memory, and you, see you lose some of your long-term memory. That's oh. that's that's exactly right. I, you know, like I, I've I've dealt with a number of teenagers that were smoking marijuana, um, and they were they were smoking multiple times a day, and. Um, and these were very bright young men and women. Their IQs were uh, above average. Uh, but when the psychological test came back on these children, what I noticed was that the processing speed of the brain was below average. Their wow. short-term short memory was impaired and, and, and the motivation was, was very low. Now, was all of this because of marijuana? No, probably not. But was marijuana contributing to it? Yeah, I think it probably was. Yeah. So, you know, we have to recognize that in adolescence, their brain is very vulnerable. Their brain is still developing and forming these, these important uh, pathways that, that they're going to need as an adult. So when we start to introduce a substance like marijuana or any other drug into a developing adolescent brain, we run the risk of doing some damage. Now, we may not see that damage right away, but, uh, but it's, under, it's under the surface and, and, may, and may be affecting that child's ability to, to perform. Wow. 
yeah, these these are things that I, I believe that people really need to start talking about even more. Um, I know, and this is kind of like a little bit of a side road. When we were when President Trump was in, he was trying to get the borders closed to stop the trafficking of the illegal substances, you know, coming into the country. But his main thing was, you know, this is affecting you know, your families. This is this is stopping them from being able to have productive lives. Do you see, um, you know, is there still that same drive, that same force to try to deal with the, the substance abuses from a governmental level? Not not even so much on the president presidential level, but like on the local level with your your governors and your uh, your your mayors and things like that. Are they supportive? I, I don't see a lot of initiative in the local or state level to, to address this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm beginning to see uh, under the new administration, I, we are beginning to see some uh, some changes in terms of, of people being appointed that are more of an advocate towards addressing this issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we may be able to see a, a little little more emphasis on really addressing this issue. Um, I noticed that over the over the pandemic years, I think the number of opiate overdose deaths has hit an all time record. Can you believe that? I mean, uh, yeah, I can believe it because of uh, because of the effect of the pandemic on people, and um, and the fact that this opiate crisis has been building up over years, um, and now it's gotten to the point where it's just gotten totally out of hand. So I'm very hopeful that at least on the federal level now that we see the seriousness of this, that there'll be a stronger emphasis on doing something both in terms of prevention, in terms of, of, of helping these people, and in terms of education. I remember um, Governor Carney from the state of Delaware, he was talking about, you know, not closing the liquor stores down because of the effects that it yeah. would have upon people. And a lot of people were upset, you know, that he, that he made that statement but it really was a very smart decision because of, you know, people going through withdrawal, then having to put them in the hospital to, to go through these withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. You know, when you look at a teenager who's not supposed to technically be buying alcohol, someone is supplying it to them. This becomes even more complicated because now everyone's at home. You know, everyone has been at home this last year and a half, so to speak, with COVID, those who weren't essential personnel. Have you seen any um, like things, you know, behaviors that, you know, that the parents wouldn't necessarily see? Yeah, I think I think what we're beginning to see um, is the effect of the pandemic that it's had not only on adolescents, but adults as well. Mm. The Center for Disease Control has already reported that since the pandemic uh, started well over a year ago, 
there's been a rather dramatic increase in the in the number of emergency room visits by grade school children and wow. there's been, and there's been an increase in the number of teenagers who have uh, been in need of some type of mental health care so i think we're just beginning to see some of the mental health effects that this pandemic has had on our children wow. um, and as they transition back into school i think that for some kids not all kids but for some kids that might be a difficult adjustment getting back into the so-called regular school system and the classrooms and everything that goes with it that that might be difficult for some kids now there's going to be an anxiety level with going back you know yes. the, the fears associated with am i going to catch covid from someone yeah. else or right you know yeah. yeah where before you were kind of isolated now it's 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 there yeah, I think that's I think that's going to be another concern, at least initially on until kids get back into the school school system, back into the classrooms, and they begin to feel a little bit more comfortable with with what's going on. So, walk me through the addicted child parents guide. Well, I wrote this book uh, to be a resource for parents, a, a quick resource for parents so that they would have the information and hopefully um, be better prepared for this, not be as frightened about it. Uh, knowledge is power. So the more that they know about this, perhaps less frightening it will be for them um, and, and they'll feel better prepared. So in this book, I have a brief review of the street drugs that are out there. So as many parents really? don't, don't know about a lot of these drugs, they know about alcohol and marijuana, but they may not know about some of the other drugs that are out there on the street. What are uh, some of the newest drugs? Well, uh, kids are still gravitating towards marijuana and alcohol. Those are still the two primary drugs. But, but Is it because of price? Um, I think it's because of availability. Uh, you know, alcohol and marijuana are readily available to these kids. Um, there is some use of, of the more hardcore drugs like LSD and cocaine and Oxycontin, some prescription drug abuse like Ritalin and Adderall, but those are low percentages in comparison to the number of kids that are drinking alcohol or using marijuana. But, but what we have noticed in the last few years is a dramatic increase in the adolescent population of what's called vaping, which is where they will take a, an really. Uh -huh. And they'll use either uh, uh, marijuana or nicotine, and they'll turn it into a vapor and inhale it. Then the percentages of adolescents who are vaping uh, nicotine and marijuana in the last three years has grown dramatically. It's starting to stabilize a little bit, but compared to two or three years ago, the percentages of kids vaping uh, those substances has increased dramatically. Wow. So in my book, um, I, I give warning signs for parents because one of the reasons I think parents sometimes feel so bad when they find out their kid is using a substance, they, they say, well, how did I miss the warning signs? Well, they missed the warning signs because nobody told them what the warning signs were to look for. Yeah. Uh, so in my book, I have warning signs on alcohol use. I have warning signs on marijuana use. I have warning signs for a child that might be eating, uh, developing an eating disorder or might be self-harming themselves because sometimes, not always, but sometimes they will accompany a child's use of, of alcohol or drugs or, 
or, or like marijuana. Um, so I have warning signs in there that every parent should be at least familiar with. Um, I have the assessments and the tests that a parent should get if they suspect their child is using a substance, what tests should they get done so that they can get a diagnosis? I have- uh, Now would this be from their primary care doctor or would they have to seek out a mental health professional? Um, the type, it depends on the type of test. For example, I recommend an addictions assessment so that you get an assessment on what your child has been using in a diagnosis. That could come from an addictions counselor. It could come from a psychologist. It could come from a psychiatrist. It could come from a social worker. So a number of these professionals are, are able to do some of these assessments. Now, when you get to the more detailed assessments, like a psychological assessment or a neuropsychological assessment to establish if there's some underlying mental health issue that will fall in the in the, in the realm of a psychologist or a, or a psychiatrist or, or, or maybe a social worker now can you talk about this a little bit how do you get the child's buy-in on participating in these tests because if they're hiding it and you don't you don't have their their full support, can that skew the tests that are being done? You know, no, it's not going to skew the test because the professionals that are doing the assessments, they know how to deal with a child that is oppositional or reluctant. And, okay. and many of these tests are standardized tests uh, so that the, the, the child's not going to be able to, uh, to get around it. I think what parents will face is a child that's just oppositional doesn't want to go into the testing, is refusing to do it. Uh, very few children are going to willingly want to go in and get these assessments done. And parents are used to kids telling them no. You right. know, every right. parent has confronted a child and they've told them they want them to do something and the kid has said, no, I'm not want to do it. So, <laughs> so parents are aware of, of how to deal with this. The, the message I think that's important is if you're concerned that your child is using a substance, you need to get that child assessed regardless of whether they want to do it or not because you need to have that information so that you know how serious it is and you know what the options are for you in terms of what the next step should be and, and what treatment is is best recommended. Is, um, you know, for, for this part of the process, is it necessary to have them, uh, like, put in a home, put in, in inpatient treatment, or is, is all of this done outpatient? Uh, most of the assessment can be done on an outpatient basis. Um, you know, the, if, if it's a really serious uh, situation, the child may require being admitted into a, a facility so that the assessment can be done and the child can be kept safe. Mm -hmm. But I would say that in, 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 in many cases, these assessments can be done on an outpatient basis. So in terms of success, yeah. for being able to break the child out of these addictive behaviors and patterns. Is yeah. it is it looking good right now or is it is this still an uphill battle? I know how hard it is for adults, but um, you know, because of having to deal with some of these right now. What are you seeing as far as children? Are they are you finding success rates? Yes, yes. I I, I, I believe that once the intervention is done 
once the appropriate assessments are being conducted and the diagnosis is determined and a treatment plan is offered to the family, to the parents, and the, and the child gets into the appropriate treatment program, then yes, I, I believe that there can be tremendous success for both the child and for the family. Obviously, the earlier you catch these warning signs, the earlier you get the assessments and the treatment plan in place, and the earlier you can begin treatment, the sooner you can move beyond this. Mm -hmm. but, but there is hope. Uh, treatment does work. And there is no one treatment that fits every child. It has to be individualized. Really? Some some, some some children will do very well in an outpatient program where they may see somebody maybe once or twice a week. Other children might do well in what we call an intensive outpatient program where they go in maybe three or four times a week. And then for some children where the, where the substance use is so severe or there are serious underlying issues like depression or anxiety or trauma or an eating disorder or self-injury, that child may, may be served best by going into what we call a residential treatment program, where they will be in a residential program for quite a period of time. Mm. But it, the type of treatment really comes down to the diagnosis and what's best for that child. Wow. So do you have any cases in your book about uh, successes or failures or I have some examples of, of kids that I that I have treated, um, you know, um, just some very brief information about what they were going through. But I can say that because I worked in a psychiatric hospital, that there were a tremendous number of success stories as a result of kids who came into the hospital reluctantly. They didn't want to be there. Yeah. Um, they tried to, to get out of coming into the hospital. Um, and, and they came in usually very angry. But after a few days or maybe a week, they sort of settled down. They got into the process. They got into the routine. And I saw some actually in just a, just a matter of a few weeks, I saw some remarkable changes in these kids. Now, most of them went on for further treatment. Right. But even in our treatment units, because we had some units that actually worked on tre treatment, um, there, were, there are some remarkable uh, stories that come out of treatment. That's exciting. You know, that gives, uh, that should give every parent some type of hope who has yeah. to deal with these, these uh, particular addictions and situations. And right now, there's so many different things that are going on. I, I like how you incorporated even uh, uh, the, the harm, the help harming themselves, and also the problems with food because that's something that gets overlooked as well. You know, we're, we're quick to look at uh, as parents. You know, we're quick to look for drugs or smoking or you know something like that. But you know, the types of things with your child not eating, you know, because they're trying to lose weight or they're overeating, you know. It, that's interesting that you um you picked up on those addictive behaviors as well. 
It's very important because sometimes I think we focus on the child's drug use or mm -hmm. their alcohol use, and we put so much attention on it that it's very easy to miss maybe some other underlying issue that's going on. And, and that's why uh, it, it's so important to get a comprehensive assessment, not just an assessment that's looking at the child's alcohol or drug use, but a comprehensive assessment that's looking at the entire picture of your child. If those other issues are there, they get uncovered uh, because they're going to need treatment too. You can't just treat the alcohol and drug use if you've got these other issues going on. So it's very important to, that a parent get a complete picture of what's going on uh, with their child. Have you ever run into situations where the parent is addicted as well and they're trying to fix the kid without fixing themselves? I, I think that happens uh, because uh, many parents are in denial when it comes to their own substance use. Mm -hmm. uh, they can sort of spot their kids' use, uh, but, but they're not willing to necessarily address uh, their own use. And, and that can complicate treatment. It can make it much more difficult. Have you had any cases where this involves uh, molestations, sexual abuses, where the child gets into sex addictions as well? No, I haven't seen uh, that in the adolescent population. I've seen it in, in the adult population, but I haven't seen it uh, in, in the adult or in the adolescent population. I, I, have, uh, I have seen some kids who get into compulsive gaming uh you know video gaming, gaming? Really? yeah you know where they're on their their gaming machines and 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 it really becomes a, a compulsive behavior wow. um, and i saw something not too long ago about how the pandemic has uh, has affected gaming among adolescents because they've been captured at home they've been home so much that the amount of time these kids are spending on their on their gaming devices whether it's on their phone or through a, 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 a gaming system um, has really increased substantially because the kids have been pretty much isolated at home my goal is to get this book in front of as many parents as, as possible both those who are struggling with children using these substances and those who don't have uh, children struggling with the issue my goal is to get this in the hands of every parent, every grandparent who has a, uh, every parent who has a child that is either a teenager or a pre-teenager, mm -hmm. because I want every parent to have this information, even if they don't need it right now, to have it at their fingertips, to have it as a resource. Hopefully it will help them feel uh, better prepared in the event they have to deal with this issue. Uh, so my goal is is to educate parents. My goal is to give them hope, is to help them understand a little bit better uh, what this subject is all about, how their child's brain works, um, what assessments are needed, what warning signs are out there. Um, I, I just want them to feel better prepared to deal with this issue in the event that they have to. And, it, and, and I made this book available. Uh, it's very concise. Like I said, it only runs about 107 pages because I know parents don't have a lot of time to do a lot of reading, but I wanted it to be a resource that they could read very quickly. It's available as a Kindle for people who like to read on their Kindle, okay. but it's also available in paperback uh, for those who would like to have a paperback copy that they can hold on to. Um, there's also a parent workbook. Uh, that might help some parents process what they're going through as well, because I think parents need help as well as the kids. Yes.
are there any type of support groups that have sprung out of this book? No, not because of the book, but uh, but I do have resources in my book for for parents, uh, and and included in those resources are some information about uh, support groups for both kids and for the parents um, that that I think hopefully they'll find helpful if they need those because I think it's important that parents get help and support as well. Yes. Yes. Well, Mr. Capriola, thank you for sharing the Addicted Child Parents Guide with us. Um, you can find this at helptheaddictedchild.com. And please make sure that you get a copy of this, Step Parents, and make sure that you take a hold and look at the warning signs that Mr. Capriola has found. Any closing comments, closing thoughts? No, I just want to say that I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me and to share your thoughts and your comments on this as well. And uh, if you have any questions that people send in to you or your family and friends uh, bring up questions that maybe we didn't have an opportunity to discuss, I'd be more than happy to come back and have another conversation with you. But Very really nice. But I do appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And if, uh, if, if you'd like to have another session sometime, just, uh, just let me know, and I'll be glad to uh, come back on. Absolutely. Thank you, Mr. Capriola. Thank you. I appreciate it. This has been Christopher of Radiant Fire Radio, and I have the author, Richard Capriola, The Addicted Child. just want to thank him for coming. And make sure that you go to his webpage and pick up this book. This is going to be an important resource for you. We are committed to excellence and truth. We're committed to bringing the whole gospel to you. As we go forth in this endeavor in this hour, we pray that God would be with you. His prophetic mantle and his prophetic anointing would be upon your life. Please feel free to contact us at any time with questions, comments, or concerns. You can reach us at Christopher at RadiantFire.org. Like us on Facebook, Radiant Fire Radio Ministries. And you can subscribe to our YouTube page, Radiant Fire Radio Ministries, on YouTube. 